Well, welcome everybody. Boy, it is so good to be back. I, I've been really looking forward to being here. It's, you know, great to come home, and this is our home. And I uh, love, love all of you guys. Missed everybody. And uh, just great to be here. Uh, I'll give a little bit of a brief report in the second hour of our ministry trip and uh, kind of how the Lord used that in, down in Texas and over in California. Uh, but for this first hour, I want to kind of get us reacclimated back into our study of the Olivet Discourse. So the overall study in our 9 o'clock hour, as you know, is uh, what lies ahead, an overview of the end times. And we've just been kind of slowly working our way through key topics related to the end times and key passages related to the end times. And for the last several weeks, we've been taking a look at Jesus' teaching about his return uh, in the Olivet Discourse, which of course is found in uh, Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, we have a chapter in the book, What Lies Ahead, dedicated to the Olivet Discourse. So it kind of goes through in a complete chapter, I don't remember how many pages it is, probably 20 or 30 pages, uh, the material that we're talking about week after week here in our study. So if you do not have that, there are some on the back uh, table. I just put some more out this morning. I noticed we were out and found some more uh, there under the table. So let's take a moment, uh, since it's been, well, three Sundays since we last talked about this. And by the way, I heard great reports about uh, the last two Sundays here at Plum Creek Chapel and appreciate the guys that filled in and really warms my heart to know that it's, it's always in good hands when I'm not here. Uh, but let's take a moment to just review. And I know we've done this not too long ago, so, but it, since I've been gone for the last couple Sundays, uh, it, has, it actually has been a while. Uh, but I want to do this interactively and just kind of make sure we're getting some retention here. So what is the purpose of the Olivet Discourse? What question is Jesus answering in this teaching? Can anybody tell me? What will be the sign of the end of the age? Yeah, so what will be the sign of the end of the age or of your coming? They actually sort of, uh, in, in almost an excited utterance, ask the question two or three different ways. You know, they say, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And let me see what the... the uh, other part of that question is here. So we're using Matthew 24 and 25 as our focal point, but as we've talked about, obviously uh, both Mark and Luke also record this moment, this teaching that Jesus gave from atop the Mount of Olives, Mark and Mark 13 and Luke and Luke 21. But uh, so they say, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? So really the question boils down to, one question asked three different ways, when will all of this happen? So that's point number two on this outline that you see on the screen. Uh, but what, what caused the disciples to ask that question? What was their concern? Why were they suddenly uh, concerned enough to ask Jesus in such an excited manner about the timing of his return? Do you remember what happened just before this? Anybody? Yeah. He was like, he was like, cursing the temple or something, saying that none, not one stone would be on top of another. Yeah. So he had in chapter twenty-three, he had just issued that lengthy, scathing rebuke of the national leaders of, of, of Israel in that first century, and then you're right, he had climaxed it 
by, uh, well, first he had said that he had said to them, you will not see me again until you cry out, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Uh, but then the disciples were kind of starting to sense that something was afoot here, that, 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 that he wasn't in fact going to inaugurate the kingdom uh, that week as they had expected and hoped. And so they, uh, they say, they kind of look at the temple and they begin to brag about the temple and talk about how wonderful it is and and uh, Jesus then makes it very clear when, as you said, he, he denounces the temple and says, not one stone will be left upon another. When the disciples hear that, that's when they say, okay, wait a minute. What's going on here? When is this long-awaited Messianic kingdom going to actually start? So then he answers the question beginning in verse 4. In the entire rest of the sermon, in chapter 24, starting in verse 4, all the way to the end of chapter uh, 25, verse 46, are essentially his answer to that question. And as you see on the screen there, the first section, it's number 3 on the outline, he gives general signs about the tribulation period. Now, um, we've kind of outlined that for you in some of the previous sessions, but the, the signs that he gives correlate perfectly to the teaching in the book of Revelation beginning in chapter 6 with the seal, trumpet, and bold judgments. So we know, and plus Jesus refers in that section to Daniel's prophecy, the 70 weeks prophecy. So we know Jesus is talking here about the tribulation period uh, and giving signs of the re his return to establish the kingdom, the second coming. So this is not about the rapture. The rapture is a special mystery for the church, a mystery meaning something that had previously been unrevealed and, in fact, wouldn't be revealed until at the earliest the next day, if looking at it historically, when in the upper room Jesus talked about it with his disciples when he said, I go to prepare a place for you that where I am you may be also, which is the earliest reference to the rapture anywhere in history. But then the rapture teaching begins to become more clarified uh, after Christ's death and resurrection and ascension, after the birthday of the church uh, on Acts, in, in Acts chapter 2, and as the Holy Spirit begins to lead the New Testament writers along, primarily Paul, we begin to see a number of uh, more detailed teachings about uh, the rapture. So it's very important when understanding and interpreting this passage that we see it in its context. This has nothing to do with the rapture, it's simply signs of the return of Christ to establish and inaugurate the long-awaited kingdom, at which time Israel will cry out, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They will be supernaturally regathered into the land, as we looked at in Matthew 24, 31, in fulfillment of passages like Deuteronomy 30, verse 3, and Isaiah 26, 13, or 27, 13. Um, and so, even though it's easy to look at the world around us today, and see similar activities going on to what Jesus says will reach unprecedented heights during the tribulation period, we cannot use the Olivet Discourse as a prophecy of things being fulfilled today. So someone emailed me this week with an article in which uh, the writer had pointed to a number of uh, world events today, such as the unrest and wars and, and, and all these types of things, and said, you know, is this the fulfillment of, and then pointed to several passages in the Olivet Discourse. <clears throat> and I said, well, yes and no. It's not the fulfillment of those things, but to the extent that those things are going to happen during the tribulation, if we see similar things happening <clears throat> today, 
it obviously is kind of a setting of the stage, you know. Just because Jesus says this is what's going to happen during the tribulation doesn't mean those things might not also happen before the tribulation. But that's not what he's talking about. Does that make sense? So, for example, one of the things that uh, he talks about here is wars and rumors of wars. Well, as a matter of fact, wars and rumors of wars have been around since time began. So that, that can't, you know, necessarily, we can't say, well, that means the rapture is going to happen. But we can say that if we see an uptick in that and more and more and more and more, and we know during the lead up to the second coming, it's going to be an unprecedented time with the battle of Gog and Magog and other uh, chaos going on, Daniel 11 and 12 talk about, then it, it follows, well, maybe we're getting close. So uh, it's a difference between the setting of the stage and the actual fulfillment of the prophecy. But after the rapture, which we know from other teaching in God's word, will, not, will happen before this period. The rapture happens before the tribulation, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. After that, when these things begin to happen, we know Jesus says, my coming is near. Uh, what's one of the key uh, topics that he talks about in this first section, uh, and actually in the, in the next section, which is point four on the outline on the screen, uh, that he begins the Olivet Discourse with? What is, the, what is the first thing out of his mouth when he answers this question? He says, do not be what? Deceived, Deceived right? So one of the things that is going to be characteristic of that final seven-year period is that it will be a time of unprecedented deception. Now, this is easy to connect the dots with theologically throughout Scripture because we know from passages like 2 Timothy 3.13 that deception is going to get worse and worse over time. And so it is getting worse. We see deception getting worse and worse right now. It's worse today than it was yesterday. It'll be worse tomorrow than it is today. But it will reach new levels previously unseen, which makes sense if it's getting worse every day, when we get to the tribulation. It's so much so that... Uh, you know that that's that Jesus says it were possible even the elect would, if it were possible even the elect would be deceived. So uh, what's going to happen in that final seven year period is this final climactic cosmic spiritual struggle between Satan and his demons and Christ and God and all that is good doing battle. The wrath of God is being poured out on the earth for seven years. The wrath of Satan is being poured out, and it will culminate in the return of Christ when he comes back to take the throne. And at that time, he will cast Satan into prison for a thousand years. Um, I got a phone call uh, just, uh, uh, well, I got it Thursday or Friday and returned it yesterday uh, from someone asking about how uh, Satan can be having any influence in the millennium if, in fact, he's in prison. Well, remember, Satan's not banished entirely. He's not thrown into the lake of fire till the end of the millennium. So he's put in prison, yeah. But even in prison, he can still have some influence because, for example, his demons are not imprisoned during that time. His demons are still roaming the earth, the ones that are free. There's a segment of demons that we've talked about before, and I get into this in the Spirit of the Antichrist series, that is permanently confined in Tartarus, and they won't be released until they're cast into the everlasting lake of fire. But the rest of the demons are still active. And so I always use the illustration of a mob boss who, even though he might be in prison, he's restrained to some extent, but he's still running the show. And Satan will be similar, uh, that'll be a similar thing with Satan during the, during the uh, millennium. So yeah, deception is kind of a key concept during this seven-year period, which is precisely why 
Jesus goes into so much detail, giving you know blow-by-blow blow signs that the future nation of Israel can watch for and be alert for uh, after the rapture and, and be in preparation for Christ's return. So then uh, the second half of that section, verses 15 to 26, uh, which is point number four on the screen, uh, is more detailed signs. And what's the biggie? What's the big sign that he says, when you see this, head for the hills? The abomination of desolation. The abomination of desolation, exactly. Now Daniel is the one who talks about that first in Daniel 9, 24 to 27. And that's when the Antichrist... Who, who has already been ruling the world for three and a half years at that point, uh, breaks his covenant with Israel, demands that everybody worship him, shows himself to the world that he is in fact the Antichrist, not the Christ, because he claims to be the Christ. And he uh, blasphemes God, and he turns his wrath on Israel. Up to that point, he's not been targeting Jews for death, but at the three-and-a-half-year halfway point, after the abomination of desolation, he, he, he targets Jews specifically and tries to wipe them off the face of the earth. And that's why Jesus says, you know, head for the hills, you know, pray that it's, you know, these things don't happen in winter and those types of things because it's going to be a, a really terrible time. So then uh, he, the next section is he... He, he comes back. We talked about that two or three sessions ago, a couple of sessions ago, I think. And when he comes back, there will be certain signs that will accompany his return. Cosmic signs, lightning flashing from the east to the west, the sun darkened, the moon not giving his li its light, and so forth. So forth. And, and that will be the exact moment when he comes back. And then after verse 31 there, he's basically answered the question, with some general signs, some detailed signs, and so forth. The entire rest of the sermon, beginning in verse 32 all the way through the end of chapter uh, 25, are sort of practical applications, uh, exhortations, uh, readiness, and watchfulness passages. So he sort of sums up the signs that he's been giving there with the parable of the fig tree when he says, So or now, which can be translated so, now learn the parable of the fig tree. When you see a fig tree beginning to uh, sprout uh, its, its uh, leaves, you know summer is near. And in the same way, when you see all these things I've just described, you know my return is near. Perfect analogy. Excellent analogy. Uh, now, we talked about how, how people have mistakenly tried to turn the fig tree passage into a prophecy. It's not a prophecy. There's nothing prophetic about it. It's simply an analogy that Jesus says, when you see all these signs, that, that's when my return's going to happen. In the same way that when you see the uh, green shoots coming out of a, a plant, you know that you know winter is over and summer is near. So any questions about the fig tree? So much bad teaching has emanated from that passage. It's very important to keep it simple and see it in its plain and normal context. It's not prophetic. Uh, it's simply a, a summary and application of what he's just said. And then, uh, oh, and by the way, in that same section, we have the famous generation, this generation passage. I might 
reiterate that again. I know some of these passages are kind of hard to get your hands around, and so you have to hear it like multiple times before you before it really kind of clicks. And so I know it's repetitious for some of you, uh, but it's helpful to repeat it. So in that analogy of the fig tree, he says, the, basically what he's saying is the generation that sees all these signs I've just described will be the generation that sees my return. Uh, he, specifically, the text says, assuredly, uh, which again flows right out of verses 32 and 33 uh, about the fig tree, and it's sort of an exclamation point on the fig tree analogy. Assuredly, I say to you, this generation, which generation? The one that I've just described that sees all these signs will not pass away until all these things take place. So I talked about when we looked at this in detail a few weeks ago, how these things refers back to all the things that he's just described. So the easiest way to remember what he's talking about there in Matthew 24, 34 is that this generation is the generation about whom he's speaking, not the generation to whom he's speaking. And that's very common in prophetic language. And this, of course, the Olivet Discourse is prophetic. He's talking about signs of his return and what it will all be like. And the prophets throughout the ages have often spoken to one group of people, the listeners in their time and day, about a future generation that will be alive when the actual prophecy uh, takes place. So, for example, Isaiah, speaking of the virgin uh, who will uh, have a child, uh, was the people in his day, the 8th century B.C., did not experience that. But that's who he was talking to. Now, it's important, the reason I hammer this home so often is that a, a lot of false teachers have, over the last, say, 50 to 75 years, have drifted towards a, an approach to prophecy that everything was fulfilled in its day. There is no long-term uh, prophecy because that, of course, would, would speak to supernatural origins of the Bible and the divine nature, and, and we can't have that. You know, we can't have a, a prophetic God. So they say, for example, Daniel was all fulfilled in the past. With Isaiah, when it comes to Isaiah 7.14 and the virgin birth prophecy, they say, oh, that wasn't a virgin, it was just a young maiden. And Isaiah talks about it in chapter 8 when uh, this young maiden has a child uh, named Maher Halal Hashbaz or something like that, and that's the fulfillment. That's not true at all. It's prophetic, and in fact, the New Testament explains it in Matthew that Jesus' birth fulfilled Isaiah's prophecy. So we want to watch out for anyone who tries to claim that prophecies that in context are pointing down the road in the future somehow were fulfilled in that day. And I understand why people get confused about this passage because the English translation says this generation and you know your natural context, if you don't look at the surrounding context, your natural inclination is to think, well, the, the, the generation to whom he's speaking, he's telling the disciples they won't pass away till his return occurs. And so that's the reason you have false teaching like preterism and uh, other teachings that say that Christ returned in the first century. And uh, everything after that is all spiritualized. There is not going to be a literal earthly return because his return was spiritual. And it relates to the church and the church is the kingdom and it's replacement theology and covenant theology and those types of things. So all of that is based on Matthew 24, 34. If you understand that verse correctly, it completely destroys uh, preterism. So it's the generation uh, about whom he's speaking that will see all these signs 
that generation will be the one that sees his return. And then he goes into a series of, you know, watch and be ready type passages with the analogy of Noah, the analogy of the householder, the analogy of the faithful and evil servants, and the one we looked at last time, the parable of the ten virgins. And if you remember, I talked about how it starts with a parable, has three analogies, and then ends with a parable. So it's five little, uh, what we call pericopes or segments, each one making the same point. Each one with a two-word interpretation, a two-word meaning, which is be ready. That's all he's trying to say. Because deception will be so great during that time, because many will take the mark of the beast and reject him yet again like they did in the first century, he says, be ready. And he drives that point home again and again and again. Remember we talked about how the parable of, or the analogy of Noah and the flood uh, is clearly about the second coming. To me, this one is, is less forgivable than the, the misinterpretation of the fig tree passage or the, the generation passage. Uh, because the context couldn't be more clear that the ones taken away are taken away in judgment and destroyed. That's what the Bible says. In Luke 17, the same parable, uh, the same analogy with Noah and the flood makes it clear that the ones taken away are destroyed. And in fact, that's what happened in Noah's day. So if he's making an analogy, it, it would not make any sense for the ones taken away to be the ones rescued at the rapture. Because who was taken away in Noah's day? The unrighteous, swept away by the flood and destroyed. Who was left behind on the earth to repopulate the earth? The righteous, Noah's family. And the same thing will be true at the second coming. The second coming, uh, the unrighteous are going to be cast into the everlasting fire. Uh, Jesus said, depart from me. When he comes back, he will separate sheep and goats. And to the goats, he will say, depart from me into the everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. But to... The righteous, those who are saved by grace through faith, he will say, Come ye, blessed of the Father, inherit the kingdom. So the ones left behind are the righteous. The ones taken away are the unrighteous. It's just the opposite at the rapture. And at the time Jesus is giving this teaching, no one even knew about the rapture. It had not been revealed by God, the eternal creator of the universe, to mankind. So the only thing they understood was the analogy. They knew what, what happened in Noah's day. And so Jesus says, same thing's going to happen, so be ready. Because just like in Noah's day, they were warned and warned and warned and warned and warned again, and yet they ignored the warnings, and then suddenly Noah and his family entered the ark, the floods came, and everybody was swept away. So uh, the same thing will be, will be true at the second coming. Uh, for seven years in the lead-up, they have been warned. Jesus was warning them right here. The 144,000 Jewish witnesses will uh, distribute warnings throughout the world. In fact, Jesus says everybody, by the time the tribulation is over, everybody on the earth will have heard the gospel. Not one person will have, could, could claim, well, I didn't hear the gospel. And yet, there will still be those who reject. And when Christ comes back, like he uh, talks about in the final uh, parable, the parable of the virgins, uh, they will be left outside in the dark, and they'll say, you know, let me in, let me in. And he's going to say, depart from me, uh, I never knew you. So that brings us to this uh, next section, the parable of the talents. Uh, and, uh, but, but before we begin that, any questions about any of these other analogies or parables, that the watchfulness parables that Jesus gives? Any thoughts or comments? Is it all kind of coming back to you now? I know it's been a while since we talked about it. 
but it kind of helps to put it in context and get the flow of the thought. So in section 11, Jesus then is going to shift into a lengthy parable in which he reminds Israel, the nation, of her privileged position and her duty to respond appropriately to the promise of the coming Messiah. Uh, his point is that people will respond more or less favorably to the gospel of the kingdom in that day, but respond they must. You cannot turn a deaf ear to the gospel. The applications are the same for today. He's not talking about today, but the timeless truth is similar to today. If you die without ever having placed your faith in Christ, you will spend eternity in a literal place of torment called hell. So likewise today, people need to respond to the cry of the gospel. But he's talking here about national Israel. And as he's just said in the parable of the ten virgins, if Israel does not respond, uh, those, if, a, if a particular Jew does not respond, they will be left outside uh, in the dark. So the first thing we need to understand is that the parable of the talents is completely different from the parable of the minas. They have some similarities, but they're completely different contexts. And so as we go through this passage, I'm going to point out some differences between the two. So the parable of the minas was taught by Jesus in Luke 19, and it was taught uh, on Sunday of, that, of this week. Remember, all this is taking place that final week of Christ's life leading up to the cross. And so on Sunday, the day before the triumphal entry, remember we talked about how the triumphal entry actually in history occurred on a Monday, even though we celebrated on a Sunday. Uh, but the day before, as they were on the outskirts of Jerusalem, in Bethany, uh, the disciples, Luke tells us, under the inspiration of the Spirit, thought that Christ, the, the kingdom of Christ was going to come immediately because he was about to ride into Jerusalem and destroy Rome. And so Jesus tells them this parable of the minas in Luke 19, uh, in which he says, not so fast, there's going to be a delay. So the target audience of his parable of the minas is the church, ultimately. The target audience of the parable of the talents is Israel. And there are some major differences between the details, if you look closely. So the first thing we want to understand is that the context of the parable of the talents is Israel during the tribulation, but the context of the minas is the believers during the church age. So let's pick it up. Uh, well, let's go back and pick up the context with verse 13. At the end of the parable of the ten virgins, he says, Therefore, Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour which the Son of Man is coming. A repeated theme. The idea is uh, be ready. So the context of the parable of the talents, which he's about to tell, is clearly the second coming. This is what he's been saying in the whole Olivet Discourse. You know not what hour the Son of Man is coming. Second coming. So then he says, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. Well, who's he talking about here? Israel, his own servants. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. So the connecting word for connects it to the immediate context, which is the second coming of Christ. Uh, throughout Israel's history, they've had varying opportunities to do something with the kingdom message. There have been times when they were in captivity, when they were oppressed, when the prophets, the message of the prophets was silenced, 
So that would be like the times when they've had one talent. In other words, they, they weren't as privileged. But there have been other times when they've been thriving and they've had good kings or you know, good leaders and, and they've had the, the prophet's messages have been well received. And during those times, they certainly could embrace uh, the, the kingdom message. Um, but the point is they've always had throughout that that, their history that opportunity. He goes on, oh, no, this is the parable of the talents. Now, as they heard these things, he spoke a, another parable because he was near Jerusalem because they thought the kingdom of God would appear immediately. I just mentioned that earlier. So another contrast here is that only Israel is referred to in, in the parable of the talents. There's not two groups. But in the parable of the minas, he calls, he refers to both Gentiles and Israel. So his citizens, which is that's a king, and the parable of the minas, it's a king, not just a master, it's a king. And the king, it talks about his citizens, which would be Israel, who rejected the message, and his servants, which would be uh, the church. So, he goes on, For the kingdom of heaven is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants, delivered his goods to them, and to one he gave, oh, we just said that. Um, so I'm going to skip this because I just talked about it. Again, servants and citizens. So the third difference is, and this is key, this ought to be noticeable to the simplest Bible student. In the parallel talents, each servant receives a different amount, Right? But in the Paralaminas, each servant receives the same thing, right? Each servant receives the same thing. They each receive one uh, mina. So again, to one he gave five. This is the parallel talents, to one two, and to one one. That is, again, he's talking to the nation of Israel. At various times, they've had more or less you know, blessing, if you will, more or less opportunity. Whereas here... Each servant gets one mina. You know, do business till I come, and let me see what you did with your one mina. So again, uh, whoops, these are out of order. Sorry, let me just put them all up on the screen. Only the profitable servant gets into the kingdom uh, in the peril of the talents. You'll notice the one who did nothing, and we're going to see that in a second, he's cast into uh, outer darkness. But in the parable of the minas, the, that last servant who does nothing with his minas still gets into the kingdom. He just has no reward when he gets there. See the difference? In the parable of the minas, the one who doesn't get in are the citizens who rejected him. So a completely different context. And, and it's, it's easy to see how people confuse it because we're both dealing with you know, a, servant, a king or a master giving something to servants and telling them to do something with it. But the details are different and the context is different. Um, so again, in the pair of the talents, uh, the one servant who received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. Um, you know, again, Jesus wants the listeners to take special note of this guy, and they do not want to identify with him. They do not want to be like Israel has so many times through its history, the one who does nothing with the kingdom message. Um, so after a long time, the master comes back and he wants to settle accounts. And this is, again, what Jesus is talking about, his return. And when he returns, he's, you're, you know, you're going to have to have done something with the kingdom message. And then he says, enter into the joy of your Lord, to the one who had five talents. 
to the one who had two, enter into the joy of your Lord. And then notice what happens with this last one. Then he who had received the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered. So I was afraid. I went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here it is. You know. Uh, and the Lord answered and said, You wicked and lazy servant, you know that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered. So you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back at least my own with uh, some interest. So instead, because you didn't, Cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let me pause here for a second because for those who confuse the parable of the talents here in the Olivet Discourse with that other parable, the parable of the Minas in Luke, they somehow have created this bizarre interpretation that this servant is still going to get into heaven He's just going to spend a thousand years in outer darkness weeping and gnashing his teeth as punishment for his laziness. And then he'll, God will say, okay, you've been punished enough. I'm going to let you out and you get to go to heaven. And uh, we have an excellent book that completely refutes this view called will, Should Christians Fear Outer Darkness? Uh, and that's available at the Not By Works online store. But I also have a five-part se audio series that I did on it. And the bottom line is there are only three passages in the New Testament that relate to outer darkness. All three of them are in Matthew, Matthew 8, Matthew 22, and Matthew 25 right here. And all of them are relating to Israel, and all of them are talking about a Jew who does not believe and ends up missing out not only on the earthly kingdom, but on eternity in heaven. Uh, and, and that should be pretty clear from the context. I mean, for a Christian who... Jesus said, shall never come into judgment, has passed from death to life. Paul said there's no condemnation. Uh, and and who are, we are repeatedly told to look for the return of Christ as our blessed hope and, and to wait for him, eagerly wait for him. How can we have as a blessed hope and something we eagerly wait for the notion that when we see him, the first thing he's going to do is put us over his knee and spank us for a thousand years and punish us in outer darkness? It's absurd, and again, it makes it's it's blurring the distinction between Israel and the church. It's blurring the teaching in the Gospels with the teaching in the epistles, and uh, there's much more that could be said about that. But just know that no believer ever has to fear that that there's no punishment after death for a believer. Um, so, in the parable of the Minas, it's just the opposite. Uh, he actually gets in, even though he doesn't get rewarded. He still gets into the kingdom, and in the parable of the Minas, the ones who miss the kingdom entirely, as it is with the parable of talents, are uh, the Jews. So again, uh, clear contrasts between the two. Um, one is dealing with Israel, the other the church. Um, the parable of talents only talks about Israel. The church wasn't even on the radar screen. Whereas in the parable of the talents, he's talking about both Gentiles and Israel. The parable of the talents, they each get a different amount, signifying Israel's varying degrees of opportunity through the years. In the Minas, they each get the same thing because every believer has one life of service and we're called to do something with it. And we're going to be held account when Christ comes back at the beam of judgment. We will be rewarded accordingly, not punished, but rewarded for those things that we have done with a pure heart uh, for the Lord as we've been faithful to Him. Uh, most notably, only... The profitable servants get into the kingdom. 
in the parable of the talents, whereas in the parable of the minas, the, the, the unprofitable servant gets into the kingdom. He's just not rewarded when he gets there. Right? And uh, in the parable of the talents, the unprofitable servant is clearly cast into hell, but not the one in the parable of the minas. So any question about that or comments? So when we talk about as an application this idea of believers wanting to hear the Lord say, well done, good and faithful servant, uh, that's fine. That is a biblical concept, but we get that from Luke 19, not from Matthew 25. Two different settings, two different audiences, um, and, uh, and, and obviously two different uh, meanings. Make sense? Yeah. So this totally makes sense, but you know, obviously for years, this has been preached about being the church. Yeah. And so, how did people come up with that? Where did their teaching go wrong? That. So the question is, you know, for years this passage in Matthew twenty-five has been taught as re applying to the church. Where did that come from? Well, you have to remember that for roughly eighteen hundred years or thereabouts during the Dark Ages. Uh, the Christians couldn't read their Bible and they were under the, the uh, oppression of Roman Catholicism and Roman Catholicism taught that they were the kingdom, that the church is the kingdom and the Pope is the king. And uh, so uh, there were a lot of bad teaching that emanated from that. But once we began to be able to read the Bible for ourselves after the Protestant Reformation, people began to get back into the Word again for the first time in centuries. And by the way, there was always a remnant during that time, throughout from the time of the establishment of Christianity on, there was always a remnant who was faithfully reading and, and correctly handling the Word of God. But by and large, uh, the church at large wasn't. But once we began to read it again, that's when people began to read it in its plain, normal context, and they began to see, for example, a two-phased return of Christ, a distinction between Israel and the church, literal fulfillment of future promises. They began to read the Old Testament passages and say, wait a minute, this description of the kingdom in no way is similar to what was happening in the Catholic Church today. There, there's not a throne, there's not a temple, there's not a boundary, there's not Jesus himself, the Messiah, on the throne. So people began to read, and that's when you start, saw a huge uptick in the number of books and articles and churches and movements and seminaries beginning to teach the literal grammatical historical approach to Scripture and, and dispensationalism. Dispensationalism is a biblical term, dispensational economos, it's, it's used in Ephesians, uh, and it just means that God in various times throughout history has given man different stewardships, not different ways of salvation, but he's interacted with man differently. It's, it's the progress of revelation. God revealed himself over 1,500 years, uh, gradually, progressively. So you can't take something that was written 700 years before Christ and make it have some meaning that you know, they couldn't possibly have understood then until they read the New Testament. So, uh, so that's kind of where the, the, the false teaching uh, generates from. And then even in our camp, even among those who do strive for a literal grammatical historical approach, they, they so often mishandle the Gospels. Uh, the Gospels are not talking about the church, you know. Uh, you read, uh, like we've talked about in our midweek Wednesday night study, you read some of the Reformed uh, scholars and Calvinist scholars, and their entire argument about what you have to do to be saved comes from the Gospels. 
because they don't understand grace is totally, absolutely free. There's nothing you have to do to be saved other than believe the gospel. That's the one and only condition. But they look at all of these calls to discipleship in the gospels or passages that where Jesus is talking nationally about Israel and not individually about eternal life, and they apply it to the church. So um, I think one of the biggest, easiest ways to get into doctrinal error is to not understand the uniqueness of the Gospels and their audience versus the epistles, which are to the church. Now, God, all of God's Word is profitable. There are timeless truths in everything we read from Genesis to Revelation. But you must understand it and interpret it in its context. So, so this is, I mean, they're learning this in seminary then. Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, most seminaries today are not uh, dispensational. They're not, not consistently literal, grammatical, historical. Uh, some of them are still conservative in the sense that they believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, although that's becoming uh, you know, more and more of a problem. Uh, you know, the largest Protestant denomination in the country, the Southern Baptist, just elected, I think it was last week, the, for the second time in a row, a liberal president. So if you know much about the history of Southern Baptists, for years, for decades, it was the one mainline Protestant denomination that had staved off liberalism, and they had a conservative resurgence. They, they kind of reestablished conservatism, theologically I mean, in uh, all of the six major s seminaries. And, but in recent years, it, the tide has turned once again, and it appears now after this uh, week that they've, they've now toppled as well. I know a lot of conservative friends of mine that are Southern Baptists are thinking about leaving the convention. They've, uh, they've embraced, um, you know, uh, the critical race theory as a denomination and a number of other liberal uh, concepts. And it's, it's sad to see, but it's also a sign of the times, right? Things aren't going to get better and better. They're going to get worse and worse. And so there's a remnant principle, uh, and, and we need to... Uh, always ask ourselves, if you wake up one day and find yourself in the majority, you better take a second look because uh, ultimately it's the remnant. Um, doesn't always mean that the case but because uh, there are pockets of revival. The Spirit of God in certain geographic regions could really move mightily and you might have a majority of the people that are in the right. But by and large, throughout history, it's been the majority that are wrong. I mean, look at Noah's day and look at, you know, every, uh, look at in Jesus' day, you know. They all crucified him. Only a small remnant cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Most of them cried, crucify him, crucify him. So, yeah, I think most seminaries, uh, well, it, broadly speaking, most seminaries long ago abandoned the authority of God's word. Uh, but even among conservative, by conservative we mean those who still hold to inerrancy, that there's no error in scripture, uh, even they are beginning to drift away in their interpretations. So, anybody else? Thoughts or comments or questions? Yeah. Do you ever feel, this is just on a personal level, compelled to reach out to those that are teaching differently? I mean, we've learned so much from you, but, you know, when you were talking about the weeping and gnashing of teeth, you know, the first person that always comes to my mind is the late Chuck Missler. Oh, yeah, you know? yeah. And, and I remember reading his book that, you know, actually spoke to exactly that interpretation. Do you ever, as, as a pastor, as a teacher, feel compelled to reach out to those people? I mean, 
I feel like I wish I could. I, I knew Chuck and had the chance to interact with him. I never talked to him about this, but, um, you know, uh, my experience has been time is short. There's an urgency to what we're doing at Not By Works Ministries and uh, urgency to what the local church should be doing. And if the opportunity presents itself and it comes up in a, in a appropriate setting, I'd love to dialogue with it. But I don't feel, I've learned that, you know, calling someone up who disagrees on, on major issues like this is not going to be productive, you know, um, especially in, a, in, you know, in the academic or scholarly or theological realm because uh, nobody likes to admit they're wrong, you know. Um, I get emails pretty regularly from listeners or uh people from conferences or people that watch our videos and, you know, critical of something I said. And most of the case, it's obvious right from the shoot that they're way off the radar, you know. Uh, someone who says there's no hell, for example, you know, and tries to convince me of that. And usually I don't even respond to those because it's just not productive. Um, Proverbs says, you know, go from the presence of a foolish man when you perceive not the lips of knowledge in him. So there's no sense in trying to interact with them. Um, if it's something... Uh, that's not major like that, that's just maybe a minor iteration of some theological concept, I'll usually engage them because I like to learn and I like to, you know, think through it. Even though I may not agree with them, I want to give them uh, an opportunity to respond. So we respond to all emails unless it's something way out there, you know, uh, like that. Um, or, you know, if you get criticism for speaking out against gender neutrality or you get criticism about speaking out about eternal security, stuff, I don't even respond, you know. So, yeah. Um, during the tribulation, obviously the church needs to have start over. The believers then are not believers now because we've been. Correct. Okay. Now, it's not the church starting over, though. The church is done, it's the over. Is done? Yep. The church. Well, what do believers do? Will they ever be a threat against them? Sure, the believers, but it'll be through Israel. It'll be just like it was before the church. So remember, the church, let me see if I can put up a... Well, they'll be like the disciples. Correct, before the church, right. The, the church. disciples Disciple. were both. They were saved before the church. Then the church was established. Yeah. They were baptized by the Holy Spirit, and they became part of the church. But better example would be like Abraham, Moses, David, any Old Testament believer... Uh, when, when the Bible, so the church is raptured, you see that pink arrow? The church is raptured, that puts an end to the church. The body of Christ is done, the bride of Christ is complete, and, and believers after that, anyone who gets saved after that, is not part of the church, they're just a believer. They're part of the family of God, but not part of the church. So the tribulation, you're right, at the start of it, there's no believers, as they, time goes on, they get, many get saved, and they are obviously you know, believers and part of the family of God. And then what else were you going to say? Was that your... No, that, I just wondered if they, you know, the church ever got together and were a threat to Antichrist. Yeah, so the question is, does, again, it's not the church in the tribulation. That it will be Jews and... The, belie the believers... Together? Yeah, they will be, absolutely. They will be hiding out together. They'll be fleeing from the wrath of Satan and the Antichrist. They'll be avoiding taking the mark of the beast. They will go underground. 
Uh, it's only a short period, seven years. Actually, it could be longer because you've got that unspecified length of time after the rapture. But at least as far as once the treaty is signed between Israel and the Antichrist, it's a relatively short period of time and it's going to be chaotic. They're going to, there's going to be chaos happening, natural disasters and evil and persecution and martyrdom. But yeah, they will definitely be you know, gathering together and hiding out and so forth. Uh, but we just want to be careful to use the right terminology. It's not the church. Like you don't find the word church mentioned anywhere after Revelation chapter 3. From that point on, it's all Israel. Yeah. And, and it's the 70th week of Daniel's prophecy, which is a 490-year prophecy for Israel. Go back to Daniel 9, and the prophecy is, you know, 70 weeks are determined for your holy city and your people, talking about Israel. It's also called by Jeremiah the time of Jacob or Israel's trouble. So it's totally Jewish in nature, but your point is still the same. It's kind of a new start because at the beginning of it, no believers, then people get saved having believed the gospel, and you see a great multitude of believers from every nation, tribe, tongue, and language that get saved. So good question. All right. What does ecclesia mean? Does that mean the gathering? or What, what is what? Ecclesia or church? Ecclesia is the assembly, assembly okay. or called out ones is, is the literal <clears throat> etymology of it. Um, so, and you see, you see that word used depending on the context of both Jewish synagogues as well as the church. So it's not a technical term for the church, ecclesia. Okay, well, let's uh, take a break and we'll come back again at... Uh, Roughly 10 o'clock, the live stream, for those of you live streaming, will begin with the message roughly 10.30ish, give or take five minutes.